I use the illustration of the, the, the sound effect of the needle on the record that scrapes across the record, like uh, that, that s signals some dramatic, completely different idea that no one ever heard of before. That's not what's happening with the church. Rather, the church is the continuation. It is the continuity with the trajectory of what's been happening in the Old Testament, that God's been building a people for himself. Yes, it begins with a nation, with the offspring of particular genealogy. But the goal from the very beginning is that it would encompass the whole of humanity. The whole of humanity could be, in, in a bigger way than ever, the people of God. Welcome to another lightly salted episode of On the Journey with Matt and Ken and Kenny. I'm Matt Swaim, Director of Outreach for the Coming Home Network, along with my colleagues, Ken Hensley and Kenny Burchard. Both of them were evangelical pastors. We're now all Catholic, and the whole purpose of this series is to kind of give a rationale for that, such as one can be given. Uh, the heart has reasons of which reason knows nothing. But we do have reasons. Go to chnetwork.org if you want to find out more of what we're up to. Uh, again, we're in a whole apostolate dedicated to helping you if you've got questions like we once had. And uh, we also have an online community. You can find that at community.chnetwork.org. It's a great place to plug in and talk to others who are on journeys uh, towards figuring out what these questions mean. And, of course, this is all made possible because of generous people uh, who help to pay for things like, well, like cameras and lights and stuff. So if you want to join that team, go to chnetwork.org slash compass. Gentlemen, how are you? I'm doing great. Unsalted. 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 Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thanks for caring, caring about our health. You know, you are a couple that. of salty fellows. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm doing really good tonight. I, uh, it's Friday now and tonight I'm going to be babysitting, uh, while the family goes to a dance at the school. It's a family dance. So That's I'm really great. But these episodes well. release on Wednesday. So, <laughs> at any rate the whole hope is that our uh, conversations will be full of grace and seasoned with salt but we've been going through what the catechism of the catholic church has to say about well the church and we've been getting deep into some stuff because the catechism mm -hmm. uh we've only gone a few paragraphs in i mean uh, couple dozen paragraphs in but there's just so many footnotes and references and a couple of millennia of reflection on this question of the church uh so there's been a lot and there's going to be a lot today and we're going to talk about the church as the people of god and uh, what that entails and what we even mean by that phrase people of god but ken i think you're mm -hmm. going to be the one kicking things off today so let's have it well you know you're mentioning footnotes and references i don't even look at those because the material that's written into the paragraphs is just so full and so rich that it, th there's too much there anyway. There's too much there anyway. So I just eliminate the footnotes, eliminate the references, and just go with what's there. But yeah, we've begun to work through, I think this is episode four here, we've begun to work through the Catechism's treatment of Article 9 of the, of the uh, Apostles' Creed, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. Okay, just to, just to briefly recap, in previous episodes then, we've looked at the names and images of the Church, 
We've looked at the church's origin, foundation, and mission. And then last week, uh, we looked at the subject of the mystery of the church as the universal sacrament of salvation. And and that thought, just a thought on that thought, which is a great thought, a, a sacrament, I mean, in Catholic theology, is defined as an efficacious sign. So what we're saying then is that the church is a sign of Christ's presence in the world, but it's a sign through which grace is actually conveyed. It's a living, effectual sign. In other words, the church is Christ's living or body on earth, his hands, his feet, his grace by the Spirit pouring through the church into the world. So these are things we've talked about. And today we're going to move forward to look at paragraphs 781 through 786 and focus our attention, as you just said, Matt, on the subject of the church as the people of God. Okay, let's begin by listening to paragraph 781. Um, what I'm going to do here, I'm not going to read it straight through because, again, as I said, too rich, even without the footnotes, without the, the cross-references, too rich. So what I want to do here is I want to kind of read it phrase by phrase and comment on this paragraph, paragraph 781, because what we have in this paragraph is a kind of outline of God's unfolding plan to create a people of his own. Again, I'm going to read it and comment along the way. So let's begin. At all times and in every race, anyone who fears God and does what is right has been acceptable to him. And I personally think that it's really uh, beautiful that it begins here. And of course, this is a quotation. Those of you who are familiar with your New Testament, it's a quotation from Acts chapter 10, verse 34, where Peter preaches the gospel in the house of Cornelius the Gentile and Cornelius' family. Now, Peter, this is kind of a shocker, but Peter was a Jew. He was a Jewish fisherman. And Peter says that he had never set foot in a Gentile home. <laughs> Just think about that. He had never in his life set foot in the home of a Gentile. But God calls him to go up to Caesarea and to, um, and to preach to the house of Cornelius. He comes into the house, and when he realizes what's, what's happening there, he says this, and this is the reference, verse 34 of Acts 10, Truly I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Um, I read this, you guys, and I'm reminded right away of all those New Testament passages that emphasize the individual. For God desires that all men be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth, 1 Timothy 2, verse 4. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that anyone, that all those who believe in him, anyone who believes in him, should not perish but have eternal life. 2 Peter 3, 9, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And this is where, I mean, even though the paragraph is about the church as the people of God, that's where it's going to go. I just think it's kind of beautiful that it begins by reminding us that from the beginning of time, from the very beginning, anyone, anyone, anywhere of any race, of any nation that has come to God in humble faith has been acceptable to him. Any comment there, man, before I move on? I just was going to say, I know now why you're not doing the footnotes, because even just 20 words into paragraph 781, you know, you've chunked up a pretty significant thought, <laughs> you know, that's worth sitting on for a few minutes. I mean, think yeah. about the implications of this. Think about the, impl I'm just thinking back to when you were a dispensationalist, 
Ken, when you first came to yeah. faith in Christ and you were like, I'm one of only two congregations in the whole wide world who's got this right. And yet That's right. you find this stunning statement, which is, uh, I believe this quotes from Lumen Gentium, but it's lifting, as you say, directly, directly from the Bible that says, anyone who fears God and does what is right has been acceptable to him on some level. And Paul says this in Romans too, right? But what an interesting yeah. thing for the Catholic Church, which claims to be the one true church founded by Christ, to acknowledge about yeah. all who who will to do good. Uh, okay. Anyone, anywhere, any race, any nation who comes to God in humble faith is acceptable to him. Okay, but what does the catechism say next? And this is the second sentence in this paragraph, 781. Quoting now, he has, however, willed to make men holy and save them, not as individuals without any bond or link between them, but rather to make them into a people who might acknowledge him and serve him in holiness. So, okay, so God wants to create a family. Now, how did God go about doing this? Continuing to read, he therefore chose the Israelite race to be his own people and established a covenant with it, that is with the Israelite race. He gradually instructed this people. And of course, this is the story of the entire Old Testament from Genesis chapter 12 all the way to the end. This is the story of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, the story of Moses and the children of Israel. This is the story of Joshua and the conquest of the land, Judges, Ruth, Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, through the prophets, okay? This is the story of the Old Testament. God, although from the beginning of time, individuals of any nation have been acceptable to him, he willed to create a people. And so how did he begin to do that? He did this by choosing a race, the Israelite race, to be his own, establishing a covenant with them, and gradually instructing them. Okay, but now catch this critical sentence that comes next that is so important. All these things, however, happened as a preparation for and a figure of. Keep those words in mind. A preparation for and a figure of, a, an image of, a type of that new and perfect covenant, which was to be ratified in Christ, the new covenant in his blood. He called together, that is in this new covenant, he called together a, a race, that word again, made up of Jews and Gentiles, which is everyone, which would be one, not according to the flesh, but in the spirit. Okay, let me dig into this a bit, gentlemen, because in other words, what the catechism is telling us here is that the earthly Israel comprised of the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that race, that physical race, was a figure. It was a type. It was a preparation for a spiritual family that God was fathering, which would be a spiritual race, if you will, a spiritual Israel. The Old Covenant was a preparation, the Catechism says, for the new. The physical Israel was a preparation for what St. Paul refers to as the Israel of God in Galatians chapter 6, verse 16. In other words, a spiritual family comprised of those from every kindred, tribe, and nation throughout the world, whether Jew or Gentile. Now, I want to I want to support this a little bit because I know that this idea will be new to some people. It will sound strange and it may sound um, heretical to some. 
But we catch a hint of this idea in the preaching of John the Baptist. When, when John met the Sadducees and the Pharisees who came out to the River Jordan to be baptized, and he says to them, oh, you know, you brood of vipers, who told you to flee? And, but here's the important line when he said, quit saying to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. God can take these stones and make children of Abraham. John was, John was saying, get the idea out of your mind that because you are of the physical race of Abraham, you got it made somehow. You don't. God can take stones and make children of Abraham of this kind. In other words, <clears throat> it's got to be real. You need to repent and you need to bring forth the fruit of righteousness. We see the same idea in the preaching of Jesus when he speaks to some of the Jewish leaders and he, you know, they're saying, well, we are Abraham's children. And Jesus says, well, if you were Abraham's children, you would do what Abraham did. And he, of course, he winds up saying, you are of your father, the devil, in that context. So this is something that we see in the teaching of John the Baptist. We see it in the preaching of Jesus, but it becomes very explicit in the preaching and the writing of St. Paul. Because on the, on the one hand, we find St. Paul insisting that being a mere descendant of Abraham doesn't make one a real Jew. And I'm, I'm reading from Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, where Paul says, For he is not a real Jew who is one outwardly, nor is true circumcision something external and physical. He is a Jew, implied, a real Jew who is one inwardly. And real circumcision is a matter of the heart, spiritual, not literal. That's Romans 2, 28 and 29. So on the one hand, he insists on that. On, on the other hand, we find Paul insisting that those who believe in Christ, regardless of whether they are Jew or Gentile, are the true Jews. And I'm thinking of Philippians chapter 3, verses 2, and four, uh, two through 4, where Paul writes, look out for, he's referring here to the Judaizers, who are basically saying, Gentiles cannot be saved unless they are circumcised and, be, and keep the customs of Moses, essentially unless they become Jewish proselytes, become Jews. Paul says, look out for the dogs, look out for the evil workers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh, those who want to mutilate your flesh, for we are the true circumcision. He's writing to the city of Philippi, a pagan city, a Roman city. For we are the true circumcision who worship God in the spirit glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. And one more passage for you here. Those who have faith in Christ, Paul insists, whether they are Jew or Gentile, they are the true heirs of the promises made to Abraham. True Jews, true Israelites, the Israel, the Israel of God, the true circumcision, and the heirs, the true heirs of all the promises made to Abraham. Galatians 3 27 through 29. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. You are one. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. And just one final thing before I basically end this discussion. I am not saying here and I want to make this explicit and clear. I'm not saying that God has no further plan for the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, for the Jewish people. He has a plan. He has a plan to bring many of them into Christ 
and into Christ's church, as Paul makes clear in Romans chapter 11. Where I'm tempted to go way off, but I'm not going to go way off, okay? Except that he says that for the time being, you know, Paul is moaning and, and he's, he's, he's in pain over the fact that not more of his Jewish brethren have believed. And, and, uh, but, God, but God has revealed to him that a hardening in part has happened to the Jewish people so that the Gentiles would come in. The Gentiles coming in would make the Jewish people jealous, he says, and then they would come in. They would respond. So God has a plan. It's to bring many of the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob into Christ. So what I am saying here is that when we think about the relationship between the Old Testament gentlemen and the New Testament, when we think about the relationship between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, between the earthly race of Israel and this spiritual race that the Catechism speaks of, the Church of Christ, what we have is a transition here from type to reality, from shadow to reality, from the earthly to the spiritual, from promise to fulfillment. And so I want to use that word, Kenny, that you were hammering me with as we discussed this yesterday, the word continuity. There is a great continuity in Scripture. The Old Covenant, the Old Testament, the earthly people of Israel leading toward and being fulfilled in a new covenant, a new Israel, a new race, the family of God. How did St. Augustine put it? The new is in the old concealed, the old is in the new revealed. Any comments, gentlemen? The first thing I'll say there is, uh, is yeah, that this, this um, idea of continuity holds together everything that you've just shared above, Ken, that God, you know, God has been at work since the beginning of time and across all of salvation history in terms of how he's worked with humanity. Now we're coming up to the theme of the church. <clears throat> and what we're not going to do in our Catholic ecclesiology, I use the illustration of the, the, the sound effect of the needle on the record that scrapes across the record, like uh, that, that signals some dramatic, completely different idea that no one ever heard of before. That's not what's happening with the church. Rather, the church is the continuation. It is the continuity with the trajectory of what's been happening in the Old Testament, that God's been building a people for himself. Yes, it begins with a nation, with the offspring of particular genealogy. But the goal from the very beginning is that it would encompass the whole of humanity. The whole of humanity could be, in, in a bigger way than ever, the people of God, which is what you know, that's the theme of of, uh, of this episode, and it's really where we're headed in terms of how we understand what the church is. The one thing I did want to point out here is, as we're tossing around this, this flesh and spirit language about the church and circumcisions getting tossed in here, there may be some people who are saying, wait, hold on, I'm, I'm a little bit lost. I would encourage you to go back to episode 14, where we start our series on baptism, because depending on what your formation has been like on these questions of of flesh and spirit and faith and works, you might think flesh is a catch-all term for carnal passion, or you might think that flesh is a catch-all term for, um, you know, things that I do physically as a work to try and achieve salvation. Whereas over and over again, Paul is actually using flesh as a reference to the distinction of the circumcised Jews and the 
uncircumcised Gentiles. So when he says flesh, he's referring to a very specific kind of flesh, <laughs> right? <laughs> Just want to make that clear. It's a flesh right. that is Thank you. <laughs> altered as a covenant sign of God's people throughout the Old Testament. So when Paul says, right. not flesh, but spirit, he's saying that there is a spiritual covenant sign that now marks God's people. And so often he's trying to redirect people to this understanding of baptism, right? As this entry into the people of God for the Gentiles. So you'd be baptized, and now you're part of this people. So without going too farther, too much farther in that, just for anybody who hears flesh being tossed around and thinks flesh just means carnal appetites or whatever, we're talking about mm-hmm. circumcision, and Paul is talking about circumcision a lot more times than I realized he was when I was reading through places like Galatians, for example. All right. I will not add to that. <laughs> <laughs> You added to it plenty during our series on baptism with the flinty knives and such, just so you know. I will not add nor detract from what you have said, but I'll, I'll cut you off there, if that's all right. And your discursus on circumcision was just quite, quite sharp and, and detailed, and I uh, I think that Seth may Surgical enjoy even. It. Cutting edge. <laughs> Cutting edge. Um, you know, I think I told you guys once I was preaching through Romans when I was a pastor, and, and we were in... Romans chapter four, where Paul's all about circumcision, circumcision, circumcision. And at one point, without thinking, you know, I was just preaching. I was in the preaching mode. And I said to the my congregation, I said, Paul takes the arguments of the circum, I mean, of the uh, Judaizers, and he cuts them off below the waist. And I made like a cutting motion with my arm like this. The entire congregation was suddenly silent. And I heard <laughs> the laughing began, typically from the guys, right? From guys like Matt. Anyway, okay, look. Next paragraph here, if we if we can get back to this. 782 um, begins to list some of the characteristics of the people of God. And I'm just going to read this because Kenny's going to go into depth on this same subject. And I want you just to hear it. It just begins to describe some of the characteristics of this people of God. So just listen. 782. The people of God is marked by characteristics that clearly distinguish it from all other religious, ethnic, political or cultural groups found in history. It is the people of God. God is not the property of any one people, but he acquired a people for himself from those who previously were not a people, not a, a, not a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, which Kitty's going to go into. One becomes a member of this people, not by physical birth. So he's contrasting. He's kind of repeating and expounding on what was said in that first uh, important paragraph. One becomes a member of this people, not by a physical birth, it's not an earthly race, a physical race, but by being born anew, a birth of water and the Spirit, that is, by faith in Christ and baptism. This people has for its head Jesus Christ, the anointed, the Messiah, because the same anointing, the Holy Spirit, flows from the head into the body. This is the Messianic people. The status of this people is that of the dignity and freedom of the sons of God, in whose hearts the Holy Spirit dwells as in a temple. Its law, that is the law of this people, is the new commandment to love as Christ loved us. This is the new law of the Holy Spirit, the new covenant law. Its mission is to be the salt of the earth and light of the world. This people is a most most sure seed of unity, hope, and salvation for the whole human race. Its destiny, finally, is the kingdom of God, which has been begun by God himself on earth and which must be further extended 
until it has been brought to perfection by him at the end of time. And like you said at the beginning, Matt, there's so much here. Each one of these statements could be an entire episode, but this is basically describing the people of God. It's a people that belongs to God, a people that belongs to the Messiah, a people in whom the same Holy Spirit that dwells in its head dwells in it, who has a mission to the world, to be the light of the world, to be the salt of the earth. And I want to hand it over to Kenny because he's going to dig deep into what it means to be the people of God. What I want to do is look at the final four paragraphs that we're going to cover today and root my own reflections on these four paragraphs similar to what you've done, Ken. I want them to be rooted in the biblical story of God's vocation for the human race. This is very this is a mega theme from what you just covered. This is that the church is about the entire human race. And the reason I want to do this is based on a phrase that's used by Bishop Christoph Schonborn in his commentary on this section of the catechism and what he calls the communal character of the human vocation as it's initiated in the first man, Adam, and his bride, Eve, and as it's fulfilled in the second man, as Paul calls him, Jesus, and his bride, the church. So let me share what I what I mean by that here. In the beginning of the biblical story, God's image bearers are brought together in a familial and nuptial covenant. They're given as God's own representatives dominion over the whole world. And so they're given the vocation to be the image of God. That is the visible and incarnate presence of God himself on the earth in a garden. And from there, through their offspring, this is all unpacked in the first two chapters of Genesis, through their offspring, they are to extend the dominion of God from that garden to the whole world. How so? By bringing every aspect of the world into God's divine order. They're to bring about the kingdom of God outward from, let's call it, Mission Central, Garden of Eden, Mission Central. From there, through their offspring and through imaging God properly, um, based on who God is, outward from the garden, ultimately to encompass the whole world. That's how the Bible begins, and the vocation to do that is given to the whole humanity, which the Bible says is male and female. That humanity, imaging God, is to take that vocation, that commission, out to the entire world. Now, Adam and Eve, then, in the biblical story, are the first people of God, with the first Great Commission. What is that? There to think of the Great Commission in Matthew. Go yeah. into all the world, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and I'm with you. Same for Adam and Eve. Be fruitful and multiply, replenish the earth, have dominion over it, subdue it. Bring the whole world, you people of God, into uh, union with God, into subjection mm-hmm. to God's dominion and power. And so they are the first to receive, if you will, the the threefold anointing as priestly, prophetic, and kingly people. Uh, This is the version of the human race that we find with Adam and Eve. Now, what we know about them 
is that they fail in their vocation. And we also know that God did not give up his ultimate intentions to have the world brought into this kind of reality and ruled over by a male, female, you know, king and queen humanity that extends his reign over the whole world. This is the story of the Bible. And so, as we learned a couple of episodes ago, God continues that pattern through humans to grow the family of God, and he does it through election. Uh, Adam, he's the first one chosen to be the, the, the regal king with his bride. Then he has a son, Seth, later. His line is chosen. Down from Seth comes Noah. Down from Noah come three sons. Shem is the one elected to keep the story moving. Down from Shem ultimately comes Abraham. Down from Abraham comes Isaac, then Jacob, then Israel. Israel's 12 sons from him. Judah, he's the one. Then from Judah comes the the scepter, David, the king. And ultimately through David comes Jesus. So when we get to the New Testament, Jesus, when the gospel writers want to talk about who he is, they say things like, son of David, son of Abraham, son of Adam, son of God. So this is the point at which then, within this whole biblical framework of what in the world God is up to through humanity in the biblical story, that we are now ready to read paragraph 783, because it's going to help us understand, like all of this biblical theology, like a freight train, is pushing on Mm -hmm. this paragraph that we're about to read. We need it to feel the full impact of what's in what we're about to read now. Here's what the Catechism says. Jesus Christ is the one, if you have a catechism, like circle that and underline it, Jesus Christ is the one whom the Father anointed with the Holy Spirit and established as priest, prophet, and king. The whole people of God participates. That's another word worth underlining and circling. The whole people of God participates in these three offices. The Latin word there is munera, these three munera, or the threefold munera, or anointings of Jesus and bears the responsibilities for mission and service that flow from them. Here's the big idea, then I'll then I'll pause. Going back to baptism, which you indicated, uh, Ken, is the is the covenant initiation into the people of God. By virtue of that, we enter into the community of Jesus, who has already been given authority over the whole world by the Father. All authority has been handed over to me, says Jesus in Matthew 28. By baptism, we enter into his life, his kingdom, and his authority. We take, as the Catechism says, we receive a share or a participation in what Jesus is doing in the world. So, this is where the the Catechism now begins to talk about the implications of what it means to be the church. <laughs> so you mentioned that there's this big freight train and all these cars have been piling up to drive home this point, and you mentioned um, what God intended with Adam and Eve, 
and mm-hmm. there's a there's a freight train car that we sort of blew past and didn't get a chance to unpack very much a couple of episodes ago that I just want to bring back to kind of reinforce this image of how you've got not a record scratch and Jesus starting something new and different, rather something that harkens back to Adam and Eve. I want to go back to paragraph 7066, and rather than comment on it much, I'm just going to read it because it really Mm -hmm. kind of gives you that freight train effect. 766, it says, um, The origin and growth of the church are symbolized by the blood and water which flowed from the open side of the crucified Jesus, for it was from the side of Christ as he slept the sleep of death upon the cross that there came forth the wondrous sacrament of the whole church, that's good, but mm-hmm. it goes on. As Eve was formed from the sleeping Adam's side, so the church was born from the pierced heart of Christ hanging dead on the cross. Mm-hmm. I mean, it just, mm-hmm. we, we kind of blew th- through it because it wasn't what we were focusing mm-hmm. on, you know, a couple of episodes ago. But when you rehear that after everything you just said, Kenny, it just, man, yeah. it just, it it lands for me. The thing that jumped out of your discussion here was the concept of kingdom again, in my mind, um, which is where the paragraphs I was reading left off saying, um, saying it's destiny. That is the destiny of the people of God is the kingdom, which has been begun by God on earth and which must be further extended. So as I kind of walked through the old Testament, looking at the individual, looking at the people of the race of Israel, looking at its fulfillment, You've come through here in another way, looking at that, and I still remember the day when the first verse of Matthew hit me like a train. You know, mm-hmm. uh, you, you know, you, mm-hmm. you pick it up and you read it. Okay, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, son of Abraham. Ho hum, it's a genealogy. But when you think about it, with this whole freight train leading up to it, you know, the promises and the promise of the new covenant, the promise of the son of David that would come, salvation would come, the Messiah, and all that. When this person stand, when Matthew sits here and says, "This is the book of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham," it's like he's saying, "The son. This is the son of David that everything's been pointing for uh, uh, toward. Mm-hmm. This is mm-hmm. the son of Abraham. This is the one mm-hmm. through whom the entire world will be blessed." You realize, mm-hmm. I mean, th- this has just got fulfillment stamped all over it. So anyway, this came out and I know you're yeah. going to now expand on how this is fulfilled in Christ and in his church. But um yeah, we want we want to see this this theme of continuity. Matthew's such a fun fun guy to read on that, especially in, if you're if you're if you have a little fun with Greek and you see that the first two words of Matthew's gospel in Greek are biblios genesios, book of Genesis of Jesus. Mm-hmm. It's like mm-hmm. um the book of Genesis of Jesus, <laughs> the son of God. In other words, the gospel writers, the theologians that they are, are very carefully tying what's happening to Jesus through and to the biblical story, which is what we're saying here. Continuity. God has always been doing this. He's always been building a people for himself. His intentions have always been to have this world overseen by, stewarded by, reigned over by a humanity, <laughs> a, an image-bearing mm-hmm. humanity, male and female. And this is why this imagery, as Matt pointed out, of, of bride and bridegroom is so integral to Catholic ecclesiology. Why? Because it's biblical theology. It's, of course, we would expect to see this if God is doing the same thing um, through Jesus, or if he's continuing through Jesus what he began in his original created intentions 
for this mm-hmm. world. So, so if you, if you try to unpack this, it's just so wonderful to see that what the church is, is the full participant in the very life of Jesus in the world in the same way that Eve is the full participant, this suitable helper taken out of the very side of Adam, co-regent with him, co-ruler and reigner, you know, co-dominion mm-hmm. operator with, with Adam to bring the whole world into subjection to God as his image. These ideas are retained and exploded and expanded in ecclesiology. This is why, and we'll say it over and over again in this series and especially in this episode, we as Catholics don't get freaked out at the idea that um, we do things that, quote-unquote, only Jesus does. Well, um, Well, Jesus, as we'll see, does all those things through his body, the church, and with his body, the church, just as a a husband and wife do things together. Okay, we got to keep moving, though. It's so fun to talk about this. 784. Uh, now, this is where we're going to start to unpack uh, how what this looks like. 784. Um, on entering the people of God through faith and baptism. It goes back to what you said, Ken. How does one become the people of God? Well, faith, that is allegiance to Jesus, this oath of fealty to Jesus, that's faith, and baptism, which is how we take that oath of fealty, how we enter into that covenant relationship. It is through faith and baptism that one receives a share in this people's unique priestly vocation. Christ the Lord, high priest taken from among men, has made this new people a kingdom of priests to God, his Father, the baptized by regeneration and the anointing of the Holy Spirit, are consecrated to be a spiritual house and a holy priesthood. Now, one of the things you hear, you know, sometimes in in uh, Protestant evangelical circles is that um, Protestants believe in the priesthood of all believers, and Catholics only believe in a ministerial priesthood, which is just not true at all. In fact, as Catholics, back to this word continuity, we see that the model or the, the as you said, the, the promise or the, the foreshadowing of priesthood, high priest, vocational priests or priestly tribe, and then a priestly people are all present in the Old Testament. And so as Catholics, we see that in continuity with the new. In the Old Testament, Testament, we have a high priest, a priestly tribe, the Levites, and a priestly people, the whole people of Israel. In the New Testament, that's not done away with. That's filled up. The whole trajectory of that is brought to its completion so that you would expect to see a high priest, Jesus, successors of the apostles, being that priestly order that teaches the people of God, and then all of the baptized who share in that priestly vocation uh, as ministers to God. And I'll pause right there because I know that you both have something that you want to share about this aspect of who we are as as Catholic Christians. Matt? Well, I mean, I was just trying to think through some of the ways that, you know, someone might object to this and say, well, how can a baby be a prophet, a priest, and a king? 
you know, or like, you know, some of these other things. But, you know, I'm thinking back also to the covenant sign of Israel, circumcision, which, you know, was not administered to only those who professed faith, right? The oath was expressed on their behalf. I mean, it was a familial kind of thing. You're entering into a, a family. Um, mm -hmm. And so there are, there are ways in which a baby is royal before a baby gets a chance to be in charge of anything, right? If they're born Absolutely. into a royal family. Um, yeah. There are uh, prophets who say things like, you know, they were called from their mother's womb, <laughs> right? Uh, yeah. there, there, there are aspects of this that you can sort of see that, 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 that sort of precede um, what we as maybe evangelical Christians would have said, like an age of reason acceptance of Christ as our personal Lord and Savior. Like you see that throughout the history of, of the way that God works um, when he calls priests or prophets or kings, that some of these things precede these people's ability to even claim those things or act right, on those right. things out right. of their own reason. So uh, I don't know, just the, all those images kind of crashing together for me and, and thinking about how different that was than, than what I thought the church was in my in my world, which is just the body of people who have intellectually assented to this faith. I don't know. That's, there's a lot of images crashing together for me. Yeah, and I think what you're saying there about infants, of course, you know, ch children born in the tribe of Levi, you know, when they were three years old, they weren't carrying the Ark of the Covenant around or anything like that, but they were growing up into what, you know, to take their place. And the same thing with the sons of Aaron, you know, they weren't you know, like a, a two-year-old wasn't like crawling into the Holy of Holies to offer the red heifer or something, you know, it just wasn't, it wasn't happening, even if he grew up to be the high priest himself. And so, yeah, I mean, all of, all of that, all of that fits and all of that applies. Same thing with the priesthood of all believers. But I think, Kenny, the main point that you're making there that really just strikes me is, yeah, in the old covenant, you see this pattern of a high priesthood you see a ministerial priesthood, a, a middle-level priesthood, if you will. And then the idea of the priesthood of all believers is there. God promised them, enough, you know, through Moses, if you, would be, if you would cling to me and love me and obey me, I would make you a royal priesthood, and you'd be a light to all the nations. So they would be a priestly people. And when we come to the new covenant, it's not as though, the, well, the high priest doesn't drop out. We know that Jesus is our high priest, and the priesthood of all believers is fulfilled but that doesn't mean that the middle priesthood or the ministerial priesthood is gone. In the right. Catholic worldview, it continues. In fact, it's fulfilled. As you said, it's filled up. But go ahead. Yeah, it's important for us to, to understand, though, that what we're not saying in our Catholic ecclesiology is that we, uh, that we ourselves are the mediators between God and man. The, the, the mm -hmm. catechism uses the the language of sharing and participation in the anointing of the anointed one. So just like water that comes, you know, out of a fountainhead and goes down, you know, downstream, uh, we say, well, it came out of the stream, but it came from the fountainhead. And in the same way, our priestly activity as, as the priesthood of all believers and even within the ministerial priesthood, it all flows out of the one who is anointed Jesus. In other words, we don't have it within ourselves as, as an innate or internal virtue. It all comes from Jesus. And this is actually, if that's true, how we would expect New Testament 
authors, for instance, to talk about then the relationship between our priestly vocation and the the priesthood of Jesus as our great high priest. Now, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 18 to 20, we have language like this, this sharing language. Listen to what it says. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ. Sounds good to me. Jesus is the way we came into relationship with God. <laughs> and, and, that Catholic word, has given us, us, the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. So, we are ambassadors for Christ since God is making his appeal through us. We entreat you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So there you see that 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 priestly vocation that we have is a share in the anointed one, Jesus, who's our great high priest. Any work that we do in in helping people be reconciled to God, any sense in which God's people get involved in that, Mm -hmm. it it indicates that they are participating in the share of that priestly anointing. Now, what's, what's really amazing because you know the Bible is versified, it's broken up into verses, is that we might <laughs> stop reading there when there is a verse right after this. It's chapter 6, verse 1, which I think it would be better if <laughs> this was at the end of chapter at the end of chapter 5. Listen to what 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1 says. Working together with him then. We entreat you not to accept the grace of God in vain. In other words, Paul's whole case in chapter 5 is God makes his appeal to the whole human race to be reconciled to God through the church. And then in chapter 6, verse 1, he says that we are working together with him. It might uh, encourage you to know that that word there is soon erge, soon ergo. We are in synergy with God. We are working together. We're his co, we are God's co-laborers. So again, what in the world is the church to do? It is to embrace its a priestly vocation, having a share in the priestly ministry of Jesus by virtue of our baptism. Now, I'm going to do a little more and then toss it back to you guys here. 785, the second munera, the second aspect of our anointing, which comes from Jesus, is this prophetic uh, anointing. It says, the holy people of God shares, there's that word again, also in Christ's prophetic office. Above all, in the supernatural sense of faith that belongs to the whole people, laity and clergy, when it unfailingly adheres to this faith, once for all delivered to the saints, and when it deepens its understanding and becomes Christ's witness in the midst of the world. For any Catholics who are watching, the way that you can sort of wrap your arms around this and actualize it and and begin to walk in it is something that we, we covered in our series on the Mass when we were dismissed. And the deacon often will say, 
you know, go forth, the Mass has ended, or he'll say, go forth declaring the good news, or go forth preaching the gospel, or go forth glorifying the Lord by your lives. This is exactly what's being appealed to in that sending uh, language at the end of the Mass. Mm -hmm. Go and be the voice of God, the mouth of God, the, the speech of God to the whole world about Jesus. This is what we would expect uh, in the New Testament language, for instance, where Paul says that if you call upon the name of the Lord, you'll be saved, but how will you mm -hmm. call upon him unless you hear, and how will you hear unless someone preaches, and how will anyone preach unless he's been sent? In other words, Paul links together the fact that belief in Jesus and hearing about Jesus requires mm -hmm. a church in the middle, a sent church, a sent people of God, a prophetic people of God. And um, and so I'll, let, me, let me pause right there and toss it to you guys well, uh, for some Well, I would just comment, there. first of all, that's Romans 10 you were quoting, right? And But the thing I would comment on is the passage you read earlier from 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and the first verse of 6, that's not just about the priestly office, it's about the prophetic. It's all blended together because Paul says we're making, God is making his appeal through us. So there's the prophetic office right there as well. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it just that 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 certain things just sort of hit you different than they used to hit you when you heard, uh, you know, Paul say, you know, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God is making his appeal through us. Um, you know, this is the same Paul who says there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Right. <laughs> right? So Paul is obviously like rounding out that idea, you know, of, yes, Christ is the only one who can die for our sins. But we are sharing somehow in like this ambassadorial role. We are an extension of his priesthood. We are an extension of his sacrifice. We're an extension of his prophetic prophetic ministry, of his yes. royal ministry. We're his ambassadors. Like what's yeah. an I mean, I live in outside the DC area. We're loaded with ambassadors, right? These people are extensions of the highest mm -hmm. office in their country, right? Right. And uh, they're meant to be people who are working. Not just saying what their boss thinks, but doing what their boss wants them to do, right? There's this whole, mm -hmm. I mean, if Paul's an ambassador, he's an ambassador of a, of a, well, of a, of an, ins like a, I mean, something bigger than an organization or a company mm -hmm. or something like he's an ambassador the kingdom of a kingdom. of God. A kingdom. The kingdom of God. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The only difference yeah. is if you want to be an ambassador, if you want to be an ambassador in this world, you just have to give a ton of money to whoever is elected. Then you can be an ambassador in Christ's king, uh, kingdom. It doesn't work that way at all. Also, you right. get special license plates and you can drive however you want. But yeah, and you run over matter. people and not go to jail. Well, let me let me push forward with the third, yeah. <laughs> the third um, aspect of this anointing, the share in the anointing of Jesus, the anointed one the one anointed by God, that we receive when we enter the people of God by baptism and through faith, or through faith and baptism. And that's in 786. 786, a bit of a longer paragraph, so we'll break it up a little bit. It says, finally the people of God shares, oh, I'm, I'm detecting a pattern here, guys, shares. Mm -hmm. Finally the people of God shares in the royal office of Christ. He exercises his kingship by drawing all men to himself through his death and resurrection. Christ, King and Lord of the universe, made himself the servant of all, 
for he came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. For the Christian, to reign is to serve him, particularly when serving the poor and the suffering in whom the church recognizes the image of her poor and suffering founder. The people of God fulfills its royal dignity by a life in keeping with its vocation to serve with Christ. Now, this goes all the way back to the beginning of the biblical story in which God puts an image-bearing human being in control of the world to rule over it, to reign over it, gives him a bride to be his suitable helper, to co-labor with him and to do that with him. Uh, They together bring about the reign of God, the image of God, and the flourishing of the world through their royal activity. These are This is the first king and queen of the world, if you will, Adam and Eve. And in that sense, the catechism is saying that with Jesus, the king, is his queen, is his bride, the church who sits next to him and reigns with him and rules with him and brings about his rule and reign over the whole world, brings the world into God's created order, brings God's created intentions about through her activity in the world, through making things the way they're supposed to be. And as you often hear when when you hear an exposition of the Beatitudes, you know, when people talk about the upside down kingdom, I, I, I mm-hmm. love this language, you know, I love this language here where Jesus is the king of the world, mm-hmm. the king over the universe mm-hmm. who reigns by serving and saying, I did mm-hmm. not come to be served. I came to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. And it says the same of us now, the people of God fulfills its royal dignity by a life, by a life in keeping with its vocation to serve with Christ, mm-hmm. which is you know, mm-hmm. just the opposite. You know, John and James and John's mother, you know, hey, you know, which one of them can sit on your right hand and on your left hand, Jesus? And the Lord says, you know, something about, are they willing to drink the cup? You know, can they drink the cup? You know? It's an upside down kingdom, but it's so beautiful to see this, that the way we reign is not by going out and domineering over other people or smashing their heads in or anything like that. It's the opposite of that. The way that we reign is by making ourselves like our Lord, becoming servant Mm -hmm. of all. It's very, Mm -hmm. very beautiful, beautiful. Yeah. And it it helps make sense uh, of why, you know, Catholics hang crucifixes in every rooms in their in every room in their house, right? Because that's the image of what this looks like. But this whole idea of sharing in this, sharing in this royal office of Christ, and what does that kingship look like? Um, I can't help but go back to that paragraph seven sixty six again, where it says that um, as Eve was formed from the sleeping side mm-hmm. of Adam, mm-hmm. uh, so the church was born mm. from the pierced heart of Christ, hanging dead on the cross. What did the sign above his head say as he died, right? What did the sign say? It says king. King, yeah. Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. Um, Yes. I mean, all like I say, all these images just (laughs) crash together. Like, it's hard to say, take the king discussion and have it over here, and the prophet discussion and have it over here, and the the priest discussion and have it over here. I mean, think about the song, We Three Kings, right? What do they say in, like, this, uh, I think it's, like, the last verse. There's, like, glorious now, behold him arise king and god and sacrifice whoa mm-hmm. slow those three yeah. things down but he's all he's mm-hmm. all of those things what about the i mean it's just all 
crashes together in the cross. Yeah. And actually, that's a, a good place to bring us to the final aspect of this paragraph, which begins with a reflection on the cross map. And this final portion of the last paragraph that we're looking at ties together all of this imagery that we have. And I, I want to read it, and we'll unpack it a little bit, and I just have a couple of thoughts to share as we come in for a landing. Quote, The sign of the cross, and by that we mean this if you're, you're watching, when we make the sign of the cross, the sign of the cross makes kings, wow, of all those reborn in Christ, and the anointing of the Holy Spirit consecrates them as priests, so that apart from the particular service of our ministry, all spiritual and rational Christians are recognized as members of this royal race and sharers in Christ's priestly office. What indeed is as royal for a soul as to govern the body in obedience to God? In other words, the first realm of dominion that we are to take as followers of Jesus is over the realm of our own physical body, bringing it, as uh, as Paul said, in subjection to Christ. Uh, this is uh, this is the first realm of our of our reign as Christians, and then out from there. And going on to quote, and what is as priestly as to dedicate a pure conscience to the Lord and to offer the spotless offerings of devotion on the altar of the heart. So in other words, the way the catechism ends is to bring all of this universal, you know, expanding out to the whole world imagery right back into the heart and to the life of each Christian who comes into relationship with God through Christ by faith and through baptism. And so the kingdom of God, the reign of God works outward from the heart of the person to the whole world and through the church. Now, like I said, and this is something that I, that I I, I kind of want to camp on as we come in for a landing here, that our as Catholics, our sense of what it means to be Christian is very ecclesial. We we yes, we do have our own faith. I have my faith. You have yours, uh, Ken and and Matt in in God but it isn't properly mine. It's the faith that I receive as a gift from God that comes to me through the ministry of the church. And so in that sense, even my faith is ecclesial. And I'm never going to grow into what I'm supposed to be as a Christian um, because Christian maturity is ecclesial. So if I'm disconnected from the church and the way I'm supposed to be, the, the Bible makes it very clear that we grow into the fullness of our faith through the ministry that comes to us through the church, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, and then Ephesians. Maturity is brought about in an ecclesial way. Evangelism is ecclesial. Uh, Jesus doesn't preach the gospel to people you know, from heaven. He has a church for that. Um, the whole Christian faith the whole enterprise of God in the world is ecclesial. The way the anointed one, Jesus, is working on planet Earth today is through the church in these three ways. Priests, prophets, 
and kings. And that's, wow. that's, where, we, uh, that's where we went today as the people of God. Uh, my final word here, I guess, is I'm just struck by that image that Matt brought up a few minutes ago about Jesus hanging on the cross, tortured, dying, mm-hmm. and yet the sign above his head <laughs> says, "King." he is the king. He's the king. Right. And it just reminds me, uh, it, it reminds me that, uh, you know, you want to, you know, uh, I'll say it to me, I'll say it to you too. You want to fulfill your priestly office in Christ in the church. You want to fulfill your royal office. You want to fulfill your prophetic office. Then you die. Mm-hmm. You die to yourself and you become a channel. You become a channel. Mm-hmm. That's the way it's done. It's the way it's done. A servant is not above his master, as our Lord said. I think said. every Christian on some level gets this. I think yes. anybody who has faith in Christ um, that has tried to figure out what it means to follow the Lord, uh, whether they be Luther, Lutheran or Presbyterian or Baptist or non-denominational, or they just found a Bible in a drawer in a hotel room, I think they all get yeah. that, right? Uh, but there's just such a fuller sign of it um, in this concept of the church um, and being a part of that body with Christ as the head. It's just such a fuller mm-hmm. sign. Um, and you don't have to be by yourself in a hotel room, <laughs> read the Bible, right? You are part of this massive, beautiful thing. Uh, mm-hmm. By the way, one little crack in the Catholic code tip for anybody who's wondered about this. And they've said, you know, looked at the scriptures and said, you know, it says that they set up there was a sign above Jesus' head. It said, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. But when I go into the Catholic churches, there's this little sign that just says, I-N-R-I. Like, what is that? Why do Catholics have this weird, what's this Enri? Is that a weird Catholic word? No, it's, a, it's an acronym uh, for <laughs> Jesus Nazarenus Rex Judeorum, which is the Latin rendering of Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. So if you only learn one That's thing right, today, yeah. hopefully, hopefully. Thank you. Learn. Okay. Well, Good gentlemen, stuff, guys. we've got lots more to say about the church. Uh, actually, lots more to relate as ambassadors for the catechism, as it were. The catechism is kind of making its appeal through us. But we are glad that you've been along for this episode. You go to chnetwork.org, uh, click on that On the Journey tab drop on the drop-down under Resources to see other episodes in this series and other series that we've done on other topics. You can go to community.chnetwork.org to join our online community. It's a great spot. We have weekly fellowship meetings Uh, full of people who are uh, trying to grow together in Christ as well. Uh, We also um, would love for your support. So go to chnetwork.org slash compass if you'd like to be uh, a financial supporter of what we do because we try and do everything we can to offer our resources for free to anyone who asks. But Ken, Kenny, it's been another wild ride. We'll have to see you again next time. Okay, we'll see you later, Matt. See you, Kenny. Have a great week, guys. Yep. Yep.